This is the You Can Learn Chinese podcast. For everyone who's trying to learn Chinese or reaching for the next level, you came to the right place. I am your host, Jared Turner, longtime resident of China, co-founder of the Mandarin Companion Graded Reader Series, Chinese blogger, and I find it strange like how everyone suddenly cares about straws killing dolphins because they've been breaking camels' backs for years. My co-host is John Pasden, co-founder of Mandarin Companion, founder of All Set Learning, the Chinese grammar wiki, Sinosplice.com, and has an intense phobia of negative numbers and will stop at nothing to avoid them. How can you be sure to find a good Chinese tutor? John and I will give you tips and advice on how to identify a tutor and who can help you take your Chinese to the next level. Guest interview is with Lucy Jack Lax, an aspiring musician who fell in love with China, explored the diverse ethnic music of the country, and has even written her own songs in Chinese. All this and more, let's get to it. Hey guys, this is Jared Turner coming at you from Utah in the United States. And I am John Pasden in Shanghai, China. All right, Johnny, we got the show today. And before we kick into things, we've got a couple of reviews. You want to kick us off? Here we go. A five-star review from Blue Green Potato in Singapore. And he or she says, the books are great and so is the podcast. I first read their books and found them to be a great springboard to improve my Chinese reading. The podcast has many random helpful tips. Random and helpful. That's us. Thank you, Blue Green Potato. You just made my day. Okay, we also have another review, and this came in an email from James Anderson. So, James, I appreciate you sending out this email, and I'm going to paraphrase a little bit of what he said. I love the Manor Companion books, and I have read almost all of them. The podcasts have great tips about learning Chinese. I pop back to your website every now and then and catch up on the latest tips. I like the new format last time I listened in. It works for me. In the podcast, you're always banging the drum on how important it is to be able to read quickly. So I thought I'd share this with you. Make whatever use of it you want best James. And James, he sent me a really interesting story. I'm not going to, I don't have time to go through it today on this podcast, but he gives a step-by-step on how he learned to increase his reading speed in Chinese, which is very interesting. And nowadays he says that his reading speed in Chinese is faster than his reading speed in English. So that's really fascinating. Something might what? be, a, something might want to talk about a little bit later. Yeah, it's pretty cool. He's, he did a lot of reading, though, and he, he applied some speed reading techniques. All right. So it's a five-step plan. Chinese teachers hate this guy. Learn to read fast in Mandarin in five easy steps, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, Chinese teachers hate nothing more than people learning to read quickly. Ugh. I know. Ah. Trying to keep us down. All right, so today <laughs> we're going to talk about tutors. Uh, a lot of people are out there looking for Chinese tutors to help them learn Chinese. We're specifically talking about freelance individual tutors, right? That's right. And this is a big demand item right now because a lot of people, they can't go to school. A lot of people are looking to keep up their Chinese or take this time that they have when there's a little more time during the quarantine process and uh, try to learn a little bit more Chinese. Yeah. And tutors is one thing I have a lot of experience with. It's how I got my Chinese up from intermediate to being able to go to you know a master's program in Chinese with Chinese classmates. And there are a lot of pitfalls I think tutors can definitely be the best, the most cost-effective way to do it, but it is by no means a sure thing. And also to preface this, maybe John won't quite say this, but with all set learning, it's essentially what you guys do. It's individual tutoring, right? I mean, you provide a bit of curriculum, but it's really customized to people. So additionally, this is something you have a lot of experience in and specifically working with tutors to help them 
teach Chinese effectively to people. Right. So at All Set Learning, we try to take the best of both worlds of tutors and schools. So you have the personalization associated with tutors, but then you have a bit more control and management associated with schools. Because, you know, some of the biggest pitfalls with tutors are scheduling or them not really knowing how to design a curriculum. So those are some of the things we're going to talk about if you've decided to go it alone and find a tutor on your own. And to preface this, John, just so we have a frame of reference, how many Chinese teachers have you worked with over the course of your business at Allset Learning? Oh, man. Some of them are long-term and some of them are shorter term. It's got to be around 150. Okay. So you have a little bit of experience in this area. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that doesn't mean they've taught me, but I've trained them. I've done demo lessons with them and evaluated their teaching. And I've gotten lots of feedback from my clients on the tutor strengths and weaknesses. So yeah, it's something that I'm always involved with every day. All right. So then, a wise one, what should we look for when we're looking for a Chinese tutor? All right. So I want to start with something that I think is obvious, but at the same time, not so obvious, which is experience. So everyone knows, oh, yeah, I want to find a tutor with experience. Uh, Sure, that's a no-brainer. But what does that mean, really? Because if your indicator of experience is just, I've been teaching Chinese for X years, and they put that on their resume, that doesn't necessarily mean anything. Oh, this is so true. This really relates to, honestly, like any job. I mean, I've worked in market research, and I remember there was a one guy who worked for our company. He had 10 years of experience, but it was like, what kind of experience did you have? It was doing some things that I, in my opinion, wasn't quite qualified to work on it when I was working with him. But yeah, so it's not just like, oh, you know, have you been a teacher's aide? Have you been planning stuff? Have you been kind of a cog in a wheel? Or are you just kind of like developing your own things? And what kind of success have the students been having? Okay, so I think one of the first things you need to look at is what kind of experience they have, like you're saying. So, for example, classroom experience. If you're hiring someone who has classroom experience for their first ever one-on-one tutoring gig, you might find the experience to be a bit classroomy. If they've never done anything else, they're probably not so good at, you know, customizing content and interacting in a fun way one-on-one. Yeah, that's a big deal because the dynamics on tutoring one-to-one is very different than that classroom experience. Yeah, so when we hire our tutors, we're looking for people with different kinds of experience. So a variety of experience tends to lead to a much more seasoned veteran of a teacher, someone who can think quickly on their feet. You know, they're adaptable, and they probably just have a lot more going on in their imagination other than just let's get through this curriculum for this textbook or this class. You know, that keys into one of the dynamics that happens in a classroom is that the teacher typically, they teach towards the middle. And what that means is, you know, they're teaching towards the average where the average student is. So the students who are maybe more advanced or getting ahead, it's almost like they have to put on the brakes a little bit. And the students who are behind, you maybe need extra support and maybe don't always get that support to kind of catch up to where everyone else is. So it's like that tutor, they need to be cognizant of that, right? And that's why you're hiring a tutor. You're not hiring a tutor for a classroom experience. You need specific, individualized, and adaptive instruction. Right. So this is something that you can totally gauge by looking at a resume or someone's you know, list of the work experience. Have they had classroom experience only or have they had tutoring experience or other kinds of experience individualizing a learning process? So that's something that you can see. In some cases, if they've taught Chinese for 20 years using the same textbook in the classroom, it's like they almost will have trouble unlearning their classroom approach, maybe more trouble than someone with a lot less experience. Another thing, though, and this is something that you can't really see until you start doing a demo lesson or your first lesson, is how they interact with you. So one important thing is 
do they just like praise you nonstop? I mean, I think we've all had the experience of being praised by Chinese native speakers for having amazing Chinese. But, you know, if you're elementary level, you know your Chinese is not amazing. And the teacher just won't stop being like, wow, you know, gushing over your Chinese. <laughs> to me, that kind of smacks of inexperience because if a teacher has had a lot of learners of different levels, they're, you know, they're going to be encouraging. They're not going to put you down or anything, but they're not going to be flipping out all the time about your Chinese. You know, what's most effective that they find in like psychology is that you don't praise the result, you praise the effort. Right. So it's kind of like, mm. oh, no, your Chinese is so good because that gives you kind of that fixed mindset. Right. That like, oh, so she said it's good. So I always have to be good. Therefore, it actually psychologically, it makes you a little more adverse to taking risks because you always want to be able to projecting that, you know, successful or the good Chinese. But instead of just, hey, you really tried hard, you know, that was a good effort you put in. It wasn't right. But I see where you're going with that. Or one thing that our teachers like to praise and I like to praise among our clients at All Set Learning is you did a lot of prep work. I can tell you, you did a lot of work preparing for this lesson, and that is great. Because that's praising effort, really. That's what it is. Exactly. Okay, so one is like how much they praise you, but another is just how much they push you. If you know that your pronunciation has issues, you know, your tones are all over the place, but the teacher is barely correcting you, then that right there is a signal that this teacher may not have like really high standards. And for me and my clients, like we have high standards. We want our pronunciation to one day be native-like or as close as possible. So we want a teacher that's going to help us get there. And this is a bit of a balancing act. Like the teacher can't be correcting every single sound that comes out of your mouth. But at the same time, you want to feel like they're pushing you. So that's an important thing there. Yeah, John, what do you think the line is on that? Because like you said, there are some people like they're stopping you all the time and interrupting you and say, oh, you didn't say it wrong. This is the way to say it versus, you know, like no correction at all. So where do you think is more appropriate? Well, that kind of a two pronged approach. If you're doing pronunciation practice, which I think is really good and everyone should be doing, especially at the elementary or below level, but even at the intermediate level, if you're doing pronunciation practice and the teacher should be giving you immediate feedback on every word or a line that comes out of your mouth. That's the whole point of pronunciation practice, immediate feedback. So that's one kind. But then the other kind is conversation practice. So if you guys are talking about something, this is the real purpose of language. This is communication. You're trying to tell the other person what you're thinking, how you feel. And if you're interrupting everything that's coming out of their mouth, then the communication is getting stifled. And that's just annoying. Some people are more tolerant of it than others. But as a general rule, a teacher should not be breaking up the communication at every pause. So when it comes to conversation practice, I tell my teachers to make little notes on the things that the client is consistently saying wrong, especially if you, for example, suspect that they learned the tones wrong for a certain word or something like that. Make little notes on these. And then after the conversation kind of winds up or comes to a natural stopping point, then you deliver the feedback, the corrective feedback. That sounds like very good advice. So I think this is even probably helpful for people out there right now who have a tutor. This may be, uh, you know, maybe a little overzealous in some of these areas. So what would you recommend to someone who's learning right now through a tutor and their tutor's doing this? How would you recommend to their tutor that they actually change how they're doing things? Well, we actually have a blog post on Allset Learning about this, so we could put a link in the lesson notes. One other form of correction that I think is really great, and it's especially good for intermediate learners who are trying to maintain the flow of the conversation, is something called recasting. The way this works is the learner says something, and it's a little bit wrong. And then the teacher repeats it, like questioning, 
like a confirmation that I hear you right. But as they repeat it, they're actually correcting it. And then the learner, if they're you know a little bit observant, they'll pick up on this and then they'll correct themselves and just keep going. So it's not like, you know, stop, you made a mistake, I have to correct you. It's like a, a gentle reminder, like, oh, you mean this word? And they're like, yeah, yeah, that word. And then they keep going. And the nice thing about this is if they're talking about a special topic and there's a key word that they're going to be using over and over again, but they're pronouncing it wrong, then it's nice to get the correction early on so that they can start repeating it correctly and get that reinforcement rather than saying it wrong 20 times, then finding at the end, you know, you got that word wrong 20 times. So what else is important when we're looking for a tutor? All right. So I think that pretty much covers experience. Those are some things that you can definitely look for as a learner. I think personality is really important, though. This is a person you're going to be having long conversations with, especially if you're intermediate level or higher. You're going to be having real conversations, not just, you know, what time do you get up in the morning? So personality is super important. And if the teacher doesn't have any interests in common with you, then I would say that's kind of a red flag. So we're just looking for fit and personality or commonalities and interest? Yeah, like do you enjoy talking to them? If you love movies and they never watch movies or they love books and you don't read books, those could be some red flags, right? Because if you're at a level that you can actually discuss this stuff, then some of the stuff you might want to discuss is not something they have any experience with, right? Well, I guess it makes sense just because, you know, if you want to talk to this person, one of the key things about having this tutor is to improve your overall Chinese and speaking and listening skills is a key element of that, right? So if you have nothing to talk about or it's stilted conversation with this person, then yeah, that's going to be a problem moving forward. Yeah. I mean, you can still do it. You can make progress with a teacher who's like kind of boring and just a taskmaster type. You can, but if they're interesting and the conversation is part of what motivates you to keep improving and keep showing up to all your lessons, then I think that's a better situation to be in. So this leads also to like the next aspect, personality traits, you know, and so this is not just like commonalities or interests, so to speak, but like, what's this person really like? And, you know, there's a lot of things I think that are important here. One, I think it's good to highlight on is like patience. I mean, it takes patience to communicate with someone who's not good at communicating, you know, in that language. Someone who keeps making the same tone mistakes over and over, right? Exactly. You know, one of the things, too, that I found when I've worked with uh, some other people who have, you know, been helping me learn Chinese or something is that they don't jump in too quick to, like, rescue you. You know, Mm. it's like you need to let that person struggle a little bit because a lot of times they actually they've studied the word, they studied the phrase, they know it somewhere in their head. Right. And they just need to make that connection. And there's sometimes, you know, I've struggled like that. I still struggle like that sometimes. And sometimes that person's just like, oh, you mean this, right? And you're like, yeah, that's it. But I knew that. You know, I just wanted you to give me a second and, right. you know, let me figure that out, make that connection, that neural pathway I need to form. And so that's one of the elements of patience. They need to have patience to let you struggle. And at the end, if you can't get it, then you need help. And okay, that's fine. Yeah, I find that that's something that differentiates a experienced or a really good teacher and one who's less experienced is not just having patience, but knowing how to use it. So a lot of times the teacher will jump in when if they just wait like half a second longer, the person will get it on their own. And that act of struggling and getting on their own leads to direct progress. Another thing that I've seen teachers do, which is really cool, is the student is talking, 
they make a mistake that the teacher has corrected many times. And rather than correcting them again, the teacher just gives them like a look like, come on, you, <laughs> you, you know how to use that bah, or whatever. And then they're like, oh, yeah. And then they correct themselves. And, you know, being yeah. able to correct themselves with just a tiny little nonverbal prompt can make a big difference in progress as well. I think I know what you're talking about. <laughs> so there's like, come on. <laughs> We've been here before. But also on the topic of personality traits, I think this is really important is how extroverted or introverted the teacher is. Because like if you're a talker, then you might not want to find a teacher who's a total talker. And by the same token, if you're very introverted and you hire a teacher who's very introverted, that could be kind of an awkward series of lessons you have. Mm, mm, that's true. Like we have this one client who's quite introverted and the two different tutors I have teaching him, one of them is more of a talker. So he's more okay with it. Of course, he's trying to get the guy to talk as much as possible. But he doesn't struggle with it too much. But one of the other teachers is less extroverted. So she really has to like do a bit of extra prep to make sure that she can get him talking. And it's okay. She'll do the prep. But when you're dealing with like an unknown tutor, you don't know how much work they're going to do. It can be easier to just find a personality that's going to match better with yours. Oh, that's so true. And, you know, and that's one of the aspects, though, of having a good tutor is that they'll find ways to start conversation. It's not that you have to have a whole lot of things in common or really get along with the person very, very well. It comes down to the skill of the teacher, right? It's like, can they have prompts? Can they have things that are going to be able to elicit conversation or elicit discussion, give you opportunity to use your language and also use it in a way that's engaging and relevant to you? Right, right. And I mentioned like some teachers are more extroverted. They should never be extroverted to the point that they're just listening to themselves talk. The point of a lesson is to get lots of good practice speaking. And of course, some teachers are going to be more extroverted than others, but they need to be good at getting you to talk. And if you do a demo lesson or something and they're not getting you talking, they're not asking any interesting questions, they're basically only asking yes, no questions, well, then that's also a bad sign for future interactions. Oh, absolutely. Okay, so we've covered experience and personality. Number three on my list and the last one is a very practical one, but I think it's also important. And that's just availability. So if you're going to hire a tutor and they have a very rigid schedule, like I only have time for you, this one hour block, these two times, and you know for a fact that you're sometimes going to need to reschedule, then be realistic, right? You might not be able to have more than a couple lessons a month with this person. And even if they're good, if that's all you're going to be doing with your Chinese, that's not enough. So you need to consider a teacher's flexibility, their availability schedule-wise. It's interesting that you bring this up because I've had a lot of friends who have tutors. And I remember one specifically is like, oh, yeah, my tutor, we're like, she's always rescheduling. You know, something came up. And, you know, this might be also when you're looking at a tutor, it's like uh, not every tutor is like a full-time tutor. This might be something that they're doing on the side. And that's totally fine. But sometimes they're involved in a job or something that takes a lot of extra time or projects come up, they have to work overtime, they reschedule all the time. But that also can be a problem on the client's end, on the learner's end too, right? Because I've known a lot of learners that they will constantly reschedule their tutor. Yeah, and that's what I have to deal with at my business because what we do is we manage that for the clients. And a lot of our clients are super busy with work and so they keep rescheduling. So one of the ways that we deal with that is we have multiple tutors for each client and that gives us a lot more flexibility. 
But, you know, if you're hiring an individual tutor, you don't really have that as an option. But aside from tutors sometimes having a separate full-time job, which limits their availability, there's also the case where like some superstar tutors have a big, long list of learners and they just don't have a lot of time in their schedule. And if your schedule is pretty fixed and you can work with that, then great. That might be the best tutor you ever have. But if your schedule needs more flexibility, then you need to be aware of that and maybe prioritize that when you're looking for somebody. Jared, let me return to one other thing that you just mentioned, which is how reliable they are. Like, are they canceling? Are they constantly changing times? And this is one that I think is really hard because how can you know that from a demo lesson? People don't put that on their resume. I frequently cancel my lessons. So what do you think? I think it really comes down to how serious are you about learning Chinese? Because if your teacher is not serious and you are, then, you know, you probably should find someone who's on the same level of, you know, seriousness, if you will. <laughs> you might want to find a, a teacher that's a little more professional who can be willing to work with you and, and just be there when you need them. Yeah, that's actually a pitfall that I see a lot, which is someone looks for a tutor. They find someone who seems pretty good. Maybe they don't have a lot of experience, but they're very serious. So then they start lessons. They go pretty well. But as time goes by, they kind of become friends and they notice the teacher is doing less and less prep. And for some people, like it just devolves to the teacher showing up and like, what do you want to talk about today? And, you know, no prep. Mm, yeah. And they just feel like they have no direction and they're not getting much corrective feedback or being pushed at all. That is something that you need to be aware of. It does happen. And it can sometimes be awkward to be like, uh, I don't think I want to keep learning lessons with you. So a lot of times people just make up an excuse to end the lessons and they find a new tutor. But that's just one of the, the things that you have to be aware of with tutors. Uh, that can happen. And are you someone who's going to be too embarrassed to ever end the lessons? Or are you going to like really pursue excellence and you know sometimes switch tutors if you have to? That's kind of up to you. You know, I think this brings up another aspect about all of this is that, you know, the cousin of tutors would be like a language exchange, right? And if you if you have a tutor like who's doing this or just showing up, you know, no prep, what do you want to talk about? You know, you might be able to find just a, a language exchange partner and you may be able to get to similar results. And for those of you who may not be familiar with the concept of a language exchange, what that is, is you'd find like another Chinese person who's learning English and you can get together with them and you can practice your Chinese with them and they'll get to practice their English with you. So, you know, those can have hit and miss a little bit. It can be a language partner, language exchange. But John, what's your opinion of like language exchanges? I think they're great, especially for poor students. I did that when I was a student and I made a great friend when I was still at University of Florida. It didn't help my Chinese a ton, but it helped a little bit. And it really helped my cultural understanding of China and at the time, I was planning to go to China, and I'd never been there. So it was super, super useful. But actually, getting back to the tutor thing related to language exchange, and this is a point that I wanted to make too. If you want to hire a tutor that doesn't have a lot of experience, but they seem smart and capable, you can if you do all the prep yourself. So when I was preparing to go to mm. uh, grad school in China, I found someone who I thought was smart. She didn't really have any experience teaching foreigners, but she wasn't weird when we talked. She wasn't excessively praising me. She was pretty interesting. You know, she checked a lot of the other boxes. I did the lesson plans. Like, this is what I'm going to do. This is what I need you to do. And then as she did it, I would give her feedback. And so I was teaching her how to teach me. And then she was helping me learn Chinese. And it worked pretty well. But that was quite time intensive. And fortunately, at that time in my life, I had the time for it. 
Well, that's really clever. Also throw another aspect out there that I've had people contact me directly asking about this and explain what they've done with graded readers is they just have this other person. It could be a tutor and it, it could also not be a tutor, right? Just like what you're saying, someone who's, you know, maybe capable, but not a lot of experience, but you're just reading the same book together. You can read like, you know, The Secret Garden and you come and you discuss the first chapter. You just have kind of a discussion about the book. So it only takes your prep on reading and they just need to take, you know, they're going to read 10 times faster than you anyway. And you can just talk about the book and that can be quite effective. Yeah, they can literally read a chapter of the book in like two minutes. And we have discussion questions in the back of the book too. So they don't even have to come up with their own questions. Obviously they should, but to just get the ball rolling, you can use the discussion questions that we offer. And John, I think I have to bring up one thing that I think is really important when you're selecting a tutor or just makes a good teacher, period. And this is someone who can understand the learner's perspective. This became so apparent to me when we started Manor Companion. Gosh, what are we, eight years ago? Because I remember the early days when we were finding writers to write our books and you had a bunch of potential writers who we had found a lot of people from different sources and when we looked through the samples of what we had people write, the best ones, there was like four or five, I was like, hey, these are good. But they were all tutors. They were all people who had tutored you know, Chinese learners for some period of time. And they understood how they struggle with the language. Yeah, I remember back then you were of the opinion in the very beginning that we should find someone who's like an experienced writer, someone who really knows how to craft a plot. And, and then when we looked at the samples, you're like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> that's the difference yep, I, my perspective changed that day <laughs> <laughs> experience means you're learning about the learner a chinese teacher who you know has never been a foreigner learning chinese can only kind of vicariously experience what it's like to learn chinese but the more they have that experience the more they can start to understand what it's like you know native speakers some of them have more aptitude for this type of empathy but it's important to have a good idea of what's hard and what's not. You know, things like tones. You don't mm -hmm. just get them in a week. They're a long-term thing. They're hard. And so someone who understands that is going to help you a lot more. For all of our listeners right now, you sitting there with your headphones on having to listen. You know, this is probably even why you're listening to this podcast is because you're listening to John and I who have learned Chinese and been through that process. And we know what it's like. We know the challenges that you face. And John, that's something that's even made us Mandarin Companion effective is that we understand how hard it can be. But the great thing about Chinese is that you can learn Chinese. You can learn Chinese. Good luck finding those tutors. Don't give up on one bad tutor. It sometimes takes a bit of time. You got to kiss a few frogs before you find your prince or princess. There you go. Or, but you shouldn't be kissing your tutors. All right, now we have a word from our sponsor, and our sponsor is Manor Companion. So today we want to talk about one of our awesome books called Great Expectations. And this book actually has a very special status in the world of Chinese learning because it is the longest story you can read in Chinese for learners, to my knowledge, because, you know, it has two parts. Each part is, oh man, I'm blanking on how long it is. Long. So you put those together, you get <laughs> double long. And, you know, it's all at level two, which is uh, yeah. 450 individual characters. Yeah. Each book is roughly, I think, 14 to 15,000 characters long. 
And when we wrote this book, I mean, we had planned on just doing one book. But when we got into it, I mean, <laughs> Charles Dickens, his plots are very involved. And we had a, a very watered down book that just, uh, it wasn't it wasn't good. And so we just realized what? it had to be That's way bigger. That's how I remember it. I do. I remember reading that. I'm like, we just glossed over all this huge plot points and we skipped this and that. No, but and see, at, at that point, we were already at a book and a half, remember? We were like exactly. at a book and a half length and we wanted to bring it down by another, you know, X percent to make it short enough for a regular level two book. It just wasn't yeah. going to happen. We, we couldn't do it. So we, we just made it longer. So we just go big or go home. So Great Expectations, it is a fantastic story. It's one of those stories that gets better with age. And uh, honestly, the end of book two, I mean, it's put people in tears. It put me in tears. The first time I read that, you're just like, oh, and you just want the story to go on, but it just doesn't. And But it's just, it's a very special story. So you can go out, get it today. Great Expectations, it's a level two Manor Companion book. And John, we're also going to be putting out some more level twos this year. So stay tuned. They're coming. Okay, now we have rants and raves. John, what do you have today? Okay, I have a rave. An apology in advance. This is a first world problem, a foreigner in China rant. So the rant is, if you're a foreigner living in China and you're trying to use something like these codes which show that you haven't been exposed to the virus, you have to sign up through the app. But they don't allow you to use a passport. You have to have a Chinese ID. Oh, so really? You just, so you just can't do it. So all these places won't let you in unless you have this code, but you can't get the code unless you register through the app, and you can't register through the app unless you have a Chinese ID. So because you're a foreigner, you're effectively excluded. Yes, Uh, but they don't mean to exclude you. You just are. That's how it works. So you supposedly can register through WeChat, but they don't allow for a passport registration. You supposedly can register through the code's own app, but it also doesn't work because you need a Chinese ID. The only one that does work is Alipay, which allows you to choose passport as a form of ID. So I was going to do that. And then Alipay is like, nope, you got to validate your account by linking a credit card. Okay, I have a Chinese credit card. Oh, oh you do? You know what's going to happen? Yeah, I have a Chinese credit card. My wife vouches for me so I can do it. You're one of the few foreigners that have a Chinese credit card. That's not easy to get. <laughs> well, I got it. Thanks to my wife. She's amazing. But anyway, it's like add this credit card. Okay, add the credit card. No problem. I have one. It's legit. I've been using it for years. And it's like, no, your name's wrong. It's like, no, oh. that's my name. It's like, what, add the middle name? Nope, still wrong. Add, change the order? Nope, still wrong. Any, anyway, it took, it took like so many tries <laughs> to put my They English wouldn't accept name. John Tiberius Pasden, right? <laughs> it would not. And it also had to be all <laughs> caps, I found out in the end. If it wasn't all caps, it was wrong. Yeah, so. <laughs> that's normal bank stuff there in general. <sighs> yeah, all right, so that's my Well, rant. well, well. In the end, it ended happily, and I got my code, and I can be admitted to places that require the code now, but it was pretty frustrating. Like all the KTVs. Yay. Well, you need, you need codes to get in there? I wouldn't know. Okay. KTV, Whatever. Jared. I, I know what you're going to rave about. <laughs> Go ahead. Right, I have a rave today. Uh, it's a KTV. No, I don't. So I do have a rave, though. You had a rant, so I've got a rave. And this is something that my kids have been using, and my wife got a bunch of these, and they kind of enjoy it. It is these calligraphy felt mats. And these are popular around China and they're, they're kind of fun. So if you are practicing writing characters and, you know, I bag on writing characters all the time, but you know, there are people who do that and, and it's kind of fun. You can fill out notebooks, but this calligraphy mat, what it is, it's a, you have a brush and you have the mat, you just need a cup of water and put your brush there and you can paint, you know, in water on the calligraphy mat. 
And it has, I think I'm looking here, it has 24 squares on it. And usually by the time you're going through, you get to the last square, the first ones have started drying out and it's kind of clears up again. So it's going to be a fun way to kind of practice and write characters. Uh, and they're not too expensive. You get them on Amazon for like eight bucks. If you go on AliExpress, it's like two bucks. So it's a lot of fun. They're called calligraphy mats. So Chinese calligraphy mats. And you can just search for them on Amazon or wherever you get your felt calligraphy mats. Uh, I feel like and, we need yeah, a, a picture or a video of this. Uh, maybe maybe I should make one. But this also makes me think of, it's like the junior version of those old guys in Chinese parks that have the big sponge brushes and they're doing calligraphy on the stone ground in the park. Oh, precisely. Yeah. The, in the old, old school of this was what you had like those uh, little stone trays and it was sand, right? You'd write your character in the sand and then have let the little thing you borrow go out and wipe it off, right? Like an Etch-A-Sketch. Yeah, that's, that's old school. But John, you're old school, right? I bet you learned that way. I did not. Pencil and paper for me. So my name is Lucy Jacklax. I'm from Sydney, Australia. And basically, I'm a musician and I'm trying to write Chinese music. (laughs) That is Lucy, hailing from the land down under with a delightfully Aussie accent to match. Actually, I haven't found anyone else doing what I'm doing, which actually makes me a little bit more excited about doing it. I'm hoping to sort of carve out a space here. She's an avid fan of our Chinese memes on Instagram, and her career pursuits have found her at the intersection of music and Chinese. And it all started... I think when I was 16... It was. I went over to Beijing for a couple of weeks. I stayed with my mother's friend and I had my first taste of China. Stay with us. But I still want to know a little bit about this trip when you were 16. Like, what was it about it? Like, you went to China. Uh, you went with your mom, did you say? Um, no, I just went by myself. Oh, you went by your... Like, okay, who does that? There's not a lot of 16-year-old girls that say, okay, I'm going to go to another country by myself. So, like, <laughs> how did this all come together? And, like, what specifically happened when you were there that really caught your interest? Ooh, Okay. It's sort of hard to remember what it was exactly. I just remember coming back with this real feeling of wonder around China, this new interest and fascination. I think in general, experiencing how different it was over there compared to Australia, I think experiencing Chinese people and just the kindness of Chinese people, absolutely. I think all of this are really awakened in me, this desire to know more. So were you by yourself or are you with a tour group? Oh, so yes, I was by myself, but my mother's friend, I think she was a journalist at the time, she would sort of uh, introduce me to kids she knew in the neighborhood and I'd go and hang out with them. And I think they'd take me, they'd take me out places and, and I felt like a street kid in the city <laughs> running around. And, and that was, that was fun. I guess it felt really adventurous. And I thought, oh, cool. China's a place where I can have a real adventure of my own. Yeah, I, I remember my first time to China. It was also to Beijing. I remember that feeling. So it's the, in the terms of culture shock, they call it the honeymoon phase. You know, everyone's like, wow, it's exciting. Everything's brand new, right? 
Absolutely. The culture shock phase. That's actually funny that you said those two words because later in my life, I worked for this social enterprise called the China Australia Millennial Project for about a year. And they were all about bringing Chinese millennial entrepreneurs together with Australian millennial entrepreneurs and creating these, I'd say, mutually beneficial bilateral businesses together. And I was personally involved in one business and we called our project the Culture Shock Experiment. And it was this TV show idea (laughs) that we had where we would send an Australian person to China and team them up with a modern Chinese sort of a young person and then give them that honeymoon culture shock that you're talking about and film them falling in love with China. Because I also think that when you do talk to young people in Western countries and you ask them about China and you say, okay, so when I say the word China, what do you think of? And they say, okay, the Great Wall. (laughs) And they say, dumplings. And it's just all this really stereotypical stuff, which I feel is not modern China and not where my love is, my heart is. Yeah, I, I can understand that. I remember when before I went to China, I mean, I knew it's like, you know, a big country and but I didn't grasp the reality of it. I don't know what I was expecting, but I think somehow in my mind, I had like dirt roads and mud huts, you know, but you, know, <laughs> yeah. you get there, it's like this huge modern city, like comparable to like New York really was mind blowing experience. Absolutely. And even I guess in Yunnan, traveling around that province and seeing all these giant mountains and lakes. And I just thought that that sort of scenery was just in Europe or something. (laughs) I Mm. didn't realize that it existed in China. There's amazing hidden gems around China. It's like if you think of your home country, there's always some place that you've never been or it's a popular tourist attraction or even maybe not so popular, but it's beautiful. But take that to any other country like, like China. There's all these hidden gems all around the country. It's a gorgeous place. Absolutely. I think unearthing those hidden gems is what's going to be eventually what draw people back to China. Yeah. But this whole trip, it's something that just sparks something in you. So you said, hey, I, you know, you got into start learning the language. I mean, what was the process for that? You start taking classes, you start studying by yourself. What happened? Yeah. So it was sort of gradual. I just generally learned a little bit in high school, but I had to do long distance education because no one else wanted to learn Chinese. And I've got to say, I didn't really learn that much in that time. And then I continued again at university and then did some exchange over in, in Yunnan, as I've said. I've done that sort of on and off throughout my life, learn a bit of Chinese, and then I've stopped for a while and I've forgotten all of it. And then I've started learning again and it sort of all comes back pretty quickly, but then I stop and then I, I forget all of it again. <laughs> so it's been, well, it's been that cycle. I want to hear about this exchange experience. So we went to Yunnan in Kunming, but we also traveled around to Dali and Lijiang. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah, lots of beautiful. amazing, yeah, beautiful places. Again, I had no idea these places existed in China. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, I thought it was all these I know, the cities. crazy thing is you probably didn't even know Kunming existed before, <laughs> before the exchange, no right? Way. It was I don't like, how many million people there? It's like, I don't know, five, <laughs> ten, I don't know. Exactly. Country China, there are chickens running across the street. What? What? It was so <laughs> funny. I suppose Yunnan uh, was the second step. Oh, just for our listeners, Yunnan, it's on the very southern end of China and it borders the north end of Vietnam. So it's kind of an exotic, tropical place. Totally exotic, tropical. And it's also, I think, 36% of the ethnic minorities of China live in Yunnan. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So just this, yeah. you know, hot seat of culture, <laughs> of food, of of everything. And me and my friends just did a bit of a road trip and 
we had the option of going on an English speaking tour or a Chinese speaking tour, which was dramatically cheaper. So we did the Chinese speaking tour and <laughs> we sat on a bus for, you know, hours, you know, seven hours every day. And this Chinese tour guide would just scream at us from the front of the bus, you know, telling everyone else, you know, who was Chinese on the bus about the surroundings. And and they got one of those little microphones with the speaker oh, on their belt, right? And it's like, yeah. sound quality is terrible. Yeah, I, don't I don't know why, but he just had to yell every word. <laughs> And, they got, and they're carrying a big flag on a little wiry pole. You have to yeah. pull them around. Okay. But, you know, all of that, it made it sort of more fun for me and my friends. So the thing that, that happened in Yunnan for me and during that travel and that exchange was I discovered Minzu music, so ethnic music, Chinese mm. folk and traditional music. And I have this vivid memory of riding a horse, <laughs> riding a horse through, I'm not sure where it was, but this big, beautiful open plain and all these Chinese people around me riding horses and one of them singing this amazing Chinese folk song just out into the ether. It was such a moment. It was a magical moment. Wow. And I heard Chinese folk music for the first time and I went, wow, what is this? And I got really excited about it. And I think my friends weren't nearly as interested in it as I was. <laughs> But to me, it was so different and it was just so beautiful. And I could see that that music had been written to occupy the space, you know, that it existed in. So in that beautiful open plain, riding a horse. So I came back to my university in Australia once that was finished. And I said to my professors, so, okay, I'd like to start learning Chinese folk and traditional music. Because at the time I was studying a classical music degree, an opera degree. And my professors said to me, Lucy, there's no one that can teach you that here. We don't, we don't teach that here. You know, you can learn Italian and French and Spanish opera, but we don't teach Chinese music. And so I sort of went, okay, I'm going to teach myself and ended up sort of applying the classical method of learning music to Chinese music and wow. sort of had to figure it out for myself. What was that process? It sounds like something you learned, but now you're applying that to Chinese. Yeah, absolutely. And I think in general, this process is only really applied to opera and to classical pieces when you're singing in another language, but I'll apply this process to a Chinese pop song. So basically, you have to first, dependent on what song you're given, or if you're choosing a song, it's like choosing a Chinese name. You've got to go and consult with Chinese people and figure out what's appropriate. And it's almost always Molihua. It's almost always, that's mm, yeah. always the song they want you to sing. I'll show them so, this repertoire and I'll say, look, I can sing all these songs that I've learned. And they'll go, Molly Hua is the one that we want. <laughs> so anyone listening, Molly Hua, that's a very traditional song. And, yeah, and I remember I went to a Chinese language competition and part of it was like singing and like half the people sang that song. It was like, okay, oh, that's enough. Really? <laughs> Tangent. The very first time I, I sung a Chinese song was during the Han Yu Chao speaking competition when the Confucius Institute at my university talked me into entering, even though my Chinese was terrible. But I was sort of always looking for opportunities to do things. And they said, okay, Lucy, we'll do it. And the song that they picked for me was Ai Wo Zhonghua which means, you know, it's like, I love the Chinese motherland. And I sang that for my talent portion of the Chinese language competition. And they absolutely loved it because it was super patriotic. And I was telling everyone <laughs> how much I love China. Red meat out to the judges. <laughs> <laughs> totally. And actually, that was my first year of speaking Chinese. And it was so bad at that stage that I didn't get through it all. But I had so many opportunities just 
as soon as people knew that I could sing in Chinese, I had one contestant come up to me and we collaborated on a song together, which we then went over to Shanghai Jiaotong University in 2014 and performed at a festival there. And then I had someone else from another Chinese institute see me sing and she sent me to Beijing. She scouted me and I went and sang at the Great Hall of the People. Um, wow, that's neat. Yeah, so I feel like so much just came from this one opportunity where I put myself out there and spoke some terrible Chinese, which I feel like <laughs> that's a great testament to just, you know, the whole process of learning Chinese and all the opportunities that come with it. Yeah, that's a story I hear time and time again. I'm not your specific story, but like that. It's like, I just tried. I just spoke. I just went out there and then things started happening. You know, it's not just a principle for learning language. It's also, you know, I think a principle for life. You know, you can't steer a parked car. Absolutely. And I think I've often been a perfectionist and a mentor of mine told me, because I said, hey, so I'm going to start doing this Chinese music thing. I've got this plan to do this, but I'm going to wait until my Chinese is a bit better. And she said, I think actually if you start now, people actually enjoy the journey of you improving as you go along. And actually, you'll never actually be good enough anyway. You can speak to, I'm sure you know, so many fluent native sounding speakers who learn idioms just for fun. And they'll tell you, you know, oh no, my Chinese is terrible. Oh, you know, this is so bad or this is so bad. So you're never going to be good enough anyway. So may as well start. (laughs) Well, how did you get into actually writing songs in Chinese? Yeah. So my quarter life crisis happened. And so I turned 25. (laughs) (laughs) I turned 25 and I really wanted to just figure out and be really clear on what I wanted to do with my life and my career and, you know, what was in line with my values. And I sort of had a look, okay, so here are my skills. Some of them include, I can sing, I'm a professional musician and I can speak some Chinese. And I'd had some success around Sydney and around Australia singing Chinese music. I was like the go-to girl for Chinese performances at cultural events and festivals and corporate and government events. And I'd had a pretty good response so far when performing to Chinese audiences. Actually, sometimes they would have me off stage and they'd start the song and I'd be singing the first couple of lines off stage and then I'd come onto the stage and it would be like, wow, it's actually a Caucasian (laughs) girl singing Chinese. Blonde hair, like frothing in the mouth right there. (laughs) 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 Well, actually, you know, I think I I was feeling the same though because I'd sort of get on the stage and people would be really excited and happy and I think that they appreciated that I'd learnt the Chinese song but I was sort of there going, hey, like, you know, I've put in hours of work into this and training and I'm just so happy that I get to share this thing with you that I love, that I really appreciate. It's a two-way thing, I think. Oh, that's really neat. So my quarter life crisis. All right. So maybe I can use these skills to continue performing Chinese music, but also write my own music that can hopefully be a bit of a fusion of Western and Chinese music or just Chinese lyric music that can be a form of soft power in that I can try to bring two countries together, you know, try and improve the relationship between China and Australia or, you know, China and wherever, because I think music's a powerful thing. I think art even in general is not to be underestimated. And so I thought, cool, if I can have that sort of influence, if I can have that sort of purpose, that's a great thing. And why not give it a go? Well, that's cool. So I don't even understand like the full songwriting process. 
Yeah. So we have that one song of you and we played on the intro here. So like, how did that come about? Yeah. And of course, writing Chinese music as well, I'll just add, is for me, I'm, I'm learning this process as well. I'm learning how to write fusion music in some songs I'm currently writing at the moment. I've been really wanting to add in Chinese traditional instruments. So I've sampled a few of those. And anyway, those are all works in process. But the current song that I've released, the lyrical content is about China, but I'm looking for other ways to bring in stylistically Chinese musical concepts and to also collaborate with other musicians. But that one just came about, I suppose, when I was considering my future and what to do with it. And thinking, okay, cool. So I'm stuck in this situation right now that I'm not super happy about. You know, I want to move on. I want to do more with my life. And that song in general is just about being unhappy in a situation and sort of looking deep within yourself to figure out, oh, what I want is to go and adventure and seek more wisdom and more meaning. And you can find the answer deep within yourself. Wow. Okay, but writing those lyrics, I mean, come on, we're foreigners. Good examples like John. Anything he writes professionally or whatever, he can't even write a book in Chinese because, you know, he's got to have a, a Chinese person read over that and make sure it actually sounds right. So did you have help? You know, obviously, I think you did. But, you know, what kind of help did you have and, and how did you integrate that into the song? Oh, absolutely. It is a collaborative process. And I think if it wasn't, then I wouldn't be doing it right because I don't know everything about China. I don't know everything about Chinese culture and even Chinese music yet. It's still stuff I'm learning. So basically I wrote a rough draft. My Chinese isn't that great. <laughs> you know, that's also in process. Um, it, it never is. Ah, <laughs> oh, exactly. It'll never be. But anyway, we'll, we'll continue to improve. So uh, I wrote a really rough draft and then I sent it to one of my friends to check over the translation. And then I sent it to another one of my friends to check over the translation until it had circled around about I think eight different people and then came back to me. And then because I, lyrically, I think, you know, when you're writing lyrics in another language, there are so many things to take into account. Uh, you want the verse, I guess it's got to have sort of a poetic style when you're writing lyrics for a song. You want it to be interesting. You want it to make sense culturally. You want the theme to make sense. Sometimes you want to involve slang. Well, one thing that's important as well is you know, stress on different syllables. You know, you don't want to have like this big the moment where you're just singing the word the, you know, that's not, that's not an important <laughs> word. So there's lots that for me sort of go into writing lyrics and that I take into account when writing music. So I sort of had to convey that to the people that I was collaborating with in the translation. And so after they had all had a look at it and I told them, this is what you need to do. You know, these are the things you need to include. But also I need to hear what you guys want to say about it as well. In the studio, I had a Chinese friend just come in and make sure that I was saying all the lyrics right um, and doing it again and again and hopefully getting it as good as possible. And it may not be the best, but I, I just hope with every project I can improve it a little bit more. How did you tackle like certain words that were hard to pronounce for you? Actually, I think being a singer, I think those things become a little bit easier for me because I'm a little bit more trained in doing that. And singing is just all about elongated vowels and then you just pop in consonants here and there. But I think also with a few of the j and r sounds, that's a bit more difficult when singing. So yeah, it was a little bit of a challenge, but well, I hope it sounds okay. <laughs> no, it sounds great. I mean, I've, I've listened to your song a couple times and you know, you've done very well. Thank you so much. 
So what's next for you then? I mean, you've got a song. How do you see Chinese fitting into your future? So what I'm hoping to be able to do is keep releasing music, keep releasing content that will engage with the Chinese audience. I'm mainly targeting a Chinese audience at the moment rather than a Western audience. And hopefully if I can build a bit of an audience, then we can start to collaborate on larger projects. I'd love to be able to hire and pay, you know, Chinese musicians and create big performances with them. I'm hoping that ideally I would love to be able to perform in China, but also just collaborate in general with Chinese. I guess I'm really focusing on the Chinese musicians here because that is my expert subject here. So I'm hoping that I can, yeah, go forward in that direction. And I want to kind of hear from you, like, how has Chinese impacted your life? Like, where would you be with you had never started learning Chinese? Mm. If I'd never started learning Chinese, I'd probably have tried to be a musician here in Australia, which I have. And I've certainly been a professional musician here for a while. For a while, I was a backup singer for a female rapper. And, you know, we'd perform at different festivals around Australia. And I had my own band and I worked singing at corporate events and those sort of things. But I think it would have been a whole world that I would have missed out on. I would have missed out on the whole world of Chinese language, Chinese culture and Chinese music. And I would have been in this little bubble and just, wow, now that I think about it, yeah, Chinese culture, Chinese language has really steered my life into a whole different direction, but I love it. It's just given me so much more knowledge, so many more connections. It's been so empowering. And you know, something else I'm curious to hear from your perspective. All right, you're singing. And I know you, you speak Chinese and everything, but, you know, what about literacy? How has literacy in Chinese, how has that impacted your life? Or even how is that important to you even now in learning, being able to read the language? Mm, reading. I think certainly knowing how to read in Chinese has definitely helped me to learn songs a little faster. But I think in general, when you start learning Chinese, you don't really focus too much on the reading, do you? Because you just want to start communicating and speaking. But I think a real big part of Chinese communication is via WeChat. And when you're living in China, when you're speaking to Chinese people, it's generally via WeChat and it's always in Hansa. It's always in Chinese characters. So I think gaining literacy in Chinese characters has been really important in a lot of communication and access. Well, you know, as you're talking about that, it, it brings something else to mind that you had mentioned before about, you know, writing lyrics. A lot of it's, it's poetic. Music is poetry, right? Mm. <laughs> and I don't know if you've gotten into reading any Chinese poems. You know, it's not something really I've done a lot of, but when my kids were in Chinese school, their textbooks often had poems in it. And I learned to really appreciate that. And there is, can be so deep meaning in the poetry and especially Chinese poetry. And because there's so many homonyms, I would think that, you know, gosh, wait a second, if you're writing music, delving into characters can be very important and help you understand the deeper meaning, different layers that can be behind a song. For sure. And I think that Chinese poetry and Chinese lyrics to songs are super interesting, especially to me. But I also understand when people don't want to jump into that straight away because you want to be able to just generally have a conversation with people. And generally Chinese lyrics and poetry are, you know, quite poetic and you wouldn't necessarily use them in, in daily conversation. But I think that it can really make the study of Chinese uh, really enjoyable and give it a bit more meaning. Oh, absolutely. You know, when people have asked about this before, in fact, I have this question. It's like, oh, 
will learning Chinese poetry help me to improve my Chinese? And my general answer to that is no. It's not a great way to improve your Chinese, but it's a great way to appreciate the Chinese once you've reached a certain level. Absolutely. Agreed. And also, you know, you now have a song that you can sing at KTV. <laughs> yeah. KTV for those listeners. That's a ubiquitous form of karaoke throughout China, right? Absolutely. And you've got to have at least one song. <laughs> Definitely. What's your song? Oh, no. <laughs> I, I got to hear, what's your KTV, go to KTV song? Uh, anything... It can't be Take Me Home Country Road. So. <laughs> it's anything Tang uh, Li Jun, anything Teresa Tang. Any of those really corny, cheesy classics, old school Chinese classics. And everyone's probably sitting there like, yeah. Yeah, well, the thing is every Chinese person in the room knows it. And yeah, so it's it's an easy one. (laughs) Uh, So Lucy, tell me, for someone who's out there learning Chinese right now, what advice would you give to someone? I think there are a couple of things. I think you've got to figure out what your motivations and what your goals are. I mean, I think mine are really clear to me. But for you, I think clarifying that is going to help you achieve your goals faster and also design your learning. So if you're a bit more of an extrovert like me, I'd encourage a group class because, you know, you learn from other people. They sort of hold you accountable. And also my other advice is go live in China. You know, even if it's a short stay, it doesn't have to be a year. It can be a month. It can be three months. There are so many language courses out there for you to take advantage of and so many scholarships on offer that I really encourage you to just go and try it out because I think that being in that language environment, you'll learn Chinese so quickly and it will be such a life experience. And if you could go back and do it over again, like what would you do differently? The only thing I think I would maybe tell a past version of myself is, you know, to not be fearful of living in another country because I was generally very excited to go and do that. But, you know, there are always some fears that come with that. And I had a little bit of fear about doing it, but I would just say, don't even worry about it because going there, you know, any problems you encounter, you'll solve them when you come to them. But also you're going to have so much fun that any issues you encounter won't matter anyway. So, Lucy, if people want to hear your music or learn a little bit more about you, where can they go? Okay, so soon my music will be available on all Western and Chinese streaming services. Otherwise, you can find me at my Instagram page at Luscious, L-U-S-H underscore E-S-S. I haven't come up with a Chinese name yet. I'll have to listen to your podcast about that and and think about one. Well, that's great. Well, Lucy, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with us today. And I really appreciate you sharing this experience. This has been really fun to hear about your journey through Chinese music and learning Chinese and incorporating that into your life. Oh, thank you so much. And look, I just hope some people will maybe investigate Chinese music a little bit more, maybe open their minds and their hearts to embracing Chinese music. You have been listening to the You Can Learn Chinese podcast. Help us spread the word by sharing this with your friends, classmates, teachers, cousins, gardener, taco lover, picture taker, rain dancer, book reader, and a one guy named Dylan. You can subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And please write us a review so we know how we're doing. You can find us on Facebook and at mandarincompanion.com. Apologies to John Cena. Hey, man, we just ran out of time. The You Can Learn Chinese podcast is produced by myself, Jared Turner, and our editor is James Harper. Thanks, man. I'd like to thank our guest, Juicy Jack Lax, for allowing us to use her song on this podcast. 
And of course, thanks to my co-hosts, the man, the myth, the legend, John Paston. See you next time. Yeah.